Hi guys and welcome to episode one of the In The Hub podcast with me, Neil Fackett. In this episode, we're going to talk about the history and the future of news broadcasting with industry expert John O'Lone. For those of you who don't know our guest today, John O'Lone is, in a way, one of the most renowned personalities in the field of satellite television. For more than 25 years, John has been helping to lead media operators into changing their culture and their content to take advantage of new efficiencies, markets and opportunities. Responsible for the launch of Sky News in the UK, Europe, Africa and Asia, he has since gone on to lead the development of more than 30 different media brands and digital platforms. He is also a founding partner in the IO Media Group. So, welcome John. How are you today? Very well, thank you. And uh, good afternoon or evening, everyone. Uh, We'll get straight into the questions, if that's all right with you then, John. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. So, we'll start off with how do we measure today's news consumption and does this differ from how it has been done in the past? Well, it all depends how far you want to go back. I mean, uh, back in the 70s even, um, measurement was done either by the number of uh, newspapers that were sold on street corners and over the front fence, uh, and that was a relatively simple job to count up. Uh, And, of course, broadcasting was measured by ratings, which back in those days were done uh, by diaries which were not entirely accurate, which is why subsequently we moved to, uh, in the broadcast sphere, data uh, retrieval from uh, from meters, which are more accurate but um, and statistically valid as they represent, uh, they, they physically are a cross-section of society, but they represent the entire of society when you multiply them by the magic numbers. Of course, today we're into uh, a completely different environment. While ratings are still done by uh, diaries in some countries, uh, and uh, predominantly meters in um, in the, in the West, uh, digital um, social media and um, web apps and web pages are uh, all measured uh, exactly the same way that newspapers used to be measured. That is by exactly how many hits, as we call it today, um, or how many hits the newspaper boy used to get in the old days when he threw it over the fence, because you know exactly when somebody clicks onto your website or clicks onto your app, you know exactly how many people have done it. So it's far more accurate uh, than it used to be because it's um, not taking a cross-section of the community and multiplying by the magic number. It's the real number. So uh, comparing um, television ratings with um, with actual numbers, uh, according to um, social media and uh, apps and web pages, um, is an extrapolation. But uh, pretty much now, after so many years doing these things, we've got some pretty accurate figures, no matter which way we do it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, yeah, the metrics with with websites and social media and stuff like that nowadays, you get a much clearer picture, don't you, of, of you know who exactly who and how many people are kind of uh, consuming the news. Well, that's one of the reasons why Google, for argument's sake, uh, has um, the uh, digital media has taken over the advertising um, money from uh, traditional media is because when you advertise on Google, you know exactly who you're talking to uh, because at some stage they've already filled out a form to say, even with their service provider, they say, uh, who they are, where they live, um, you know, you, you know a lot more about the person consuming your advertising and the rest of your media, uh, whether it be news or entertainment, you know a lot more about those people because uh, there is a, a background to them that um, meters and um, 
as I say, in some places, diaries just can't uh, tell the advertiser. So the advertiser knows exactly what they're paying for, as one famous uh, um, advertising executive uh, once said, I know that half the money I spend in advertising is wasted. Uh, it's just that I don't know which half. Uh, the difference today is they know exactly who they're getting to and they know exactly even whether that person is actually bothered to buy the product or not. So they're not... Uh, they're spending less money than they used to, but uh, for the advertisers, it's um, it's far more efficient, which is broadcasting's problem. I must say, I must say that uh, broadcasting is overcoming that as well because um, there are new technologies that have been available for a long time, but they're only just starting to be used, really, uh, which provide advertisers with far more detailed. Um, uh, information about the people who are consuming the product on uh, on broadcast. So carrying on from that, how, how do you think that data is changing the way that we tell stories online? Well, the first two words that come to mind and answer that question is clickbait. Uh, because there is so much uh, emphasis now placed on the number of hits that uh, websites and apps uh, achieve, uh, what the uh, publishers of... Um, some of that media, or a lot of that media, or even the uh, the newspapers turned uh, apps and web pages, uh, as concerned, if not more concerned, in um, arranging their um, their uh, data, arranging their stories, so that people will either click on it or click on it more often. You know, it was a truism in television still today, but uh, back in the old days when it had no con- little no competition electronically was. If you can get uh, twice as many people to watch the same, pro- twice as many people to watch a program, you will double your ratings. If you get them to watch twice as often, you will double your ratings. And if you can get the same number of people to watch for twice as long or twice as often, you quadruple your ratings. And the same holds true with um, with the uh, digital media today. If you can get the people who are already watching. Um, your uh, website or your app to uh, go deeper into it to stay in it longer or to come back in 10 minutes time and do the same thing again you um, just by very simple maths uh, get four times the audience or four times the hits so that's how data is changing Uh, there is a lot of research that goes into whether it be the the wall street journal or the uh, new york times or uh, suburban newspapers in britain uh, they are doing a lot of research into how people use uh, apps and web pages and how to actually target their audience because it's a more fleeting audience. It's uh, once upon a time in newspapers and broadcasting, you could rely a lot more on habit, um, as I saw it described the other day, muscle memory, uh, which accounted for a lot of the uh, ratings that were achieved uh, prior to uh, this era um, and for a lot of the uh, distribution of newspapers and other print. Uh, so you would build up, whether it was loyalty or uh, muscle memory, uh, there was a consistency of audience and a consistency of uh, of um, of interest and you would have to do something pretty terrible to get people to uh, drop what you were doing or to change the station or cancel their subscriptions. Uh, Now in uh, the double-edged sword for uh, digital media is that it's a lot easier to uh, move to the next, uh, to move to Buzzfeed from, uh, from Twitter or whatever. So, and then you've lost them Uh, once they disappear from your orbit 
you have trouble getting them to come back again. So that is a lot more volatile now than it used to be. So how, how have you seen journalists responding to the mobile revolution? Well, talking about news specifically, I mean, previously, just now, we've been talking about media generally and not just specific journalism um, or news. Uh, but specifically on journalism and news, uh, the there are fewer journalists employed now uh, because, you know, even Google News or Apple News doesn't employ many journalists they don't do their own reporting they aggregate what other people are doing so to that extent they're using other people's money to provide content for nothing uh, they certainly are providing a service and what they would say is and it's true actually that if they can place a story uh, just like clickbait if they can place a story in front of people who had uh, disappeared from that website or had no intention of ever going there or whatever if they can get that um, that masthead, uh, whether it be um, radio, television, newspapers, or digital media, if they can get uh, a new audience for that uh, masthead, if they get people to click onto that website, well, they've done them a service. Uh, and it, as Google would say, or Apple would say, and that's cost them nothing. Um, but what it has done, it has seen a terrible um, decline in uh, newspapers, terrible decline in, in, in investigative journalism, terrible decline in, decline in local reporting, uh, which the industry is still trying to grapple with um, until there is, um, everyone is looking for the, uh, for the magic pill that is going to reverse that trend. Uh, but I think the reality is there's going to be um, fewer, uh, fewer media outlets than there have been in the past as the uh, the international giants um, take over the finances of um, how this industry is uh, is governed, so journalists are becoming more uh, more attuned to uh, not just news telling stories in print, but uh, telling stories um, uh, using uh, all the um, all the techniques, all the tools that they have before them, which they could actually do. Uh, if they if they did have a phone box in their street, they could do it in the phone box, but they can actually do it in their bedroom cupboard. Uh, it is now that easy to uh, manip not manipulate, but um, to uh, to wrangle data and produce stories. Whereas before, it was uh, extremely capital intensive uh, because uh, a lot of money needed to be invested up front in a lot of equipment that was uh, quite complex and very expensive. Uh, one of the reasons is expensive is because they didn't need to produce a lot of it because there weren't that many people publishing information. Uh, now the, um, the, the equipment required is very cheap. Uh, so there is no barrier to entry. Uh, there is a barrier to maintaining. Uh, once you get in, there is a barrier to uh, staying there because the revenues are, um, are lean, as we've just seen during the lockdown. Um, that audiences for news generally, both in the UK and around the world, increased about 40% because people wanted to know what was happening, um, etc. So there was peak interest. As I said, it was up about 40%, but um, at the very same time, uh, advertising revenues decreased about 40% because advertisers didn't want to take time or space because people weren't buying things etc. So it was one of those um, unfortunate situations where there was just huge demand for the media, but the media's ability to satisfy that demand 
was balanced against their um, their revenues dropping uh, commensurately. Yeah, yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I tend to see a lot more journalists kind of interacting with communities on Twitter during that time as well, and kind of producing this kind of short form journalism through tweets and, and short videos and stuff like that, just to keep people updated. But as you said, yeah, the, the, the kind of advertising revenue just just wasn't there, was it? No, and you need your advertising revenue or your subscription. You need some kind of revenue coming in to maintain that, increase it and expand it and increase the quality of it. You may be lucky enough, like The Guardian, to have um, a charity um, looking after your finances, um, a trust. Uh, but they're few and far between. Like the New York Times, uh, they have, uh, they've got money behind them because they have been very successful in, uh, in uh, their digital um, uh, subscriptions and their digital uh, reach. Uh, but um, you've got people um, like suburban newspapers in Britain who were used to um, covering uh, local council elections, covering local personalities, local politics, and doing extremely valuable and worthwhile um, journalism into uh, keeping them on the straight and narrow. And as we say, speaking truth to power, even, you know, if it's in a local council. That happens to some extent, but not to the same extent it used to, which is a, which is a terrible loss, and we haven't yet worked out how to replace that. So in, in your opinion... What are the kind of main approaches in engaging with the news community, past and present? Well, we used to do a lot of uh, research in years gone by into the demographics of the news audience to find out more about them, to find out what they were interested in, find out what was important to them. Uh, I was reading some, uh, for argument's sake, I was reading some research yesterday which was done uh, on behalf of the uh, Reuters Institute at um, the University of Oxford, uh, and they have found that in the later stages of the uh, the virus, of the pandemic, there's been a huge increase in the what we call news avoiders, people who don't want to know what the news is because it's too distressing, uh, or it's all the same stuff according to them, or it's too boring, and um, we find, for argument's sake, that... Um, in, in one part of the research that they did, we find that... Um, which surprised me that um, probably uh, 20, 25% of men could be classed as new avoiders, uh, but uh, the figure is higher for women. Doing that kind of research into the audience is, uh, has become very important because whereas once upon a time the uh, news at 10 or uh, the 6 o'clock news on the BBC uh, would be we would have thought was uh, designed for a uh, general audience. More specifically, the six o'clock news, for argument's sake, uh, is to appeal to um, uh, to women, uh, whereas the later news appeals to men. So that's always been part of the uh, journalistic conundrum, is to know who you're talking to before you try to tell them anything uh, or engage them with anything. Uh, and when you get to apps, web pages, social media, and so on, the reality about social media is that it's not one huge audience. It's millions of audiences, which are very small. Uh, when you add them up, it's a very big audience. So the idea is, you know, even a, uh, an influencer may have you know, a million followers, but compared with how many people are actually using the medium at that time, it's, uh, it's hard to see. 
you know, as a percentage. So the um, not so much the cannibalization, but the differentiation of the audience is, uh, is an important aspect of uh, how we approach what we're doing now because it's fragmented. Uh, when it used to be fragmented into hundreds of pieces, it's now fragmented into millions of pieces. And you have to know who you're after and you have to know, firstly, whether it's worth, worthwhile going after them. Uh, and uh, if you want to be doing it this time next year, because uh, if it's worthwhile, of course, it's important to keep going, um, you have to have uh, f a focus in your mind of who you're uh, talking to, uh, whether you're just drawing them pictures or um, giving them words, uh, who you're talking to and why, they, why they're why they interested in it, why they might be interested in it, and therefore why they'll come back again. Following on from your comments about, about obviously social media and, and influencers and stuff like that, from your perspective, what is the effect of the increase in impact of social media on journalism itself? Uh, well, devastating. Uh, devastating quite often is a negative uh, term, but certainly it means, uh, it, you know, that the previous uh, landscape has been devastated. Uh, in other words, it's changed significantly. Um, what was there before is certainly not there anymore. Uh, we will find there'll be fewer and fewer newspapers. We will find that there is uh, less listening to radio and less listening to television, although what is now happening, um, according to research that I've seen, that people are using their apps and web pages and social media uh, to uh, keep up to date. Now, they might check in with that basically continually through the day, whereas once before they would just watch the news at night or when 24-hour news channels started, they would uh, less frequently than they do with apps and web pages, uh, but more frequently than they would have with the main evening news, they would check in during the day. Um, and there is more, people are more up to date now with what's happening hour by hour than they ever were before because they have the uh, means, and uh, apart from the news avoiders, um, the interest to do it, which is an interesting part of that research I was just talking about now. Even though there are more sections of uh, the uh, population that may be news avoiders than we thought before reading this research. What the research also finds is that people who aren't news avoiders are actually consuming more news than they used to. So on average, you know, this is why you have to be careful of averages because there's no such thing as an average person, even by definition. Um, on average, uh, consumption of news is up. Uh, but that doesn't mean everybody. Uh, and it's who is the everybody, uh, how that breaks down and why they're doing what they do or not doing it is the key and always has been the key to getting an audience, uh, but even more so now, and it's more scientific. But fortunately, we have the tools at our disposal to keep track of that because the very interactive relationship that we have on uh, digital media makes that possible. We might know your name, but we know everything else about you. We probably even know your name, but uh, it's been deleted. What do you think about social media and, and obviously the fake news phenomenon and, and all the kind of things surrounding that at the moment? Well, this is one of the problems that uh, the more uh, the more fragments of uh, news uh, or information or gossip uh, outlets you get, uh, the more... Um, 
the more rubbish you're going to get along with uh, the, uh, you're going to get more opportunity to get um, truthful information. Uh, and it, to a large extent, it comes back to brands that um, you, the, the whole reason why brands were invented or came into being back in the 1800s was um, they realized that if you could sell soap that was called sunlight and it was always of consistent quality and it was always a good experience to use sunlight soap, you'd buy it again. Whereas it was just called soap, you wouldn't know what to buy again. So that was basically how branding came about. Uh, and it was a belief in a, uh, in a symbol or a name. Uh, and this is really uh, the, uh, the solution or one of the solutions, um, but probably the major solution to the eradication of uh, fake news. That there, if you uh, have brands that are, um, are trustworthy, uh, they are the people that you should believe uh, and that's why branding such as Sky News or BBC or whatever is very important. Now, of course, the problem is that if you're um, extreme left wing or extreme right wing, you're not going to trust the ones in the middle because they're not telling you what uh, you believe to be true or what you think is uh, realistic. Uh, so you get Fox News, um, you get MSNBC, uh, you get The Guardian, you get The Mirror and so on. And so it's always been a... Uh, a reality in the uh, print world, and it was only inevitable that it should happen in the electronic world as well. Um, the solution to that is to find somewhere in the middle to always tell the truth, as I used to say to the people that I was working with, the only thing we're selling um, is, um, is belief. Uh, the only thing that we're selling is credibility, and if we do anything that is going to reduce our credibility, we are, in fact, uh, selling ourselves short. So, But that doesn't hold true for every media organization, particularly the ones who are just after clickbait, who would quite conceivably just say anything to get clicks. Uh, they, you know, there is a place for those, uh, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't still exist. I mean, the National Enquirer is an example of people who will say uh, outlandish things. Um, I mean, they have been using clickbait since before you had to click to do it. You just pick it up at the supermarket uh, cash register. So the techniques are uh, age old and probably go back to the Penny Dreadfuls and even before that in the streets of London in uh, the early 1800s. Um, and the solution, I think, is the same thing, that back in those days people would believe the times, um, and, and they still do. It, it's a matter of keeping your brand clean. Uh, otherwise, there's, well, to my way of thinking, there's not a lot of reason for doing it if you can't do that. Um, and the risks, uh, the risks that you're taking uh, to go the other way are just too great. You might as well get out of the business. So it's a matter of maintaining a, um, the, the trick, uh, not the trick, the, the key, <laughs> is to... Uh, is to maintain uh, a brand uh, integrity and credibility. Uh, you will still, from time to time, because we're all human, um, be a victim of uh, reporting things that aren't that subsequently turn out not to be quite accurate. But that's when you quickly, um, in, in, the, in the process of maintaining the faith of your uh, audience or your uh, your readers or whatever it is. Um, that you correct that quickly and that they do have faith and trust in you, uh, which 
if they have faith and trust in you, uh, they're not going to uh, fall foul of um, fake news. Yeah. So, I mean, with, with social media and, and mobile first dominating everyday news consumption at the moment, like we were talking about with, with clickbait and stuff like that, um, how do you think the news industry is addressing the competition with social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter? Uh, well, it's going after those audiences in on Facebook and Twitter uh, and TikTok. Uh, not TikTok. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, and all of them, including their own uh, branded uh, apps and web pages um, uh, and broadcast media. Uh, what they're having to do is move. If they were exclusively a print brand. Uh, masthead, they have had to move into these other areas as well, um, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the approach there is like we've seen that the Times um, here in London has started a radio station, and they, um, which is broadly available across the country, uh, their stated intention of starting a radio station is uh, exactly the same as their intention of going into as other newspapers have gone into uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, their own apps and web pages is to go and find the audience as it's moving around and hopefully that will then reflect back into their main product and perhaps even in time their main product will start to shift into the new areas that they've moved into uh, so they're doing that. Uh, each one requires um, a different approach to journalism, a different approach to telling stories, because it's uh, each different media has um, characteristics that uh, that you would um, you would lose if you didn't try to uh, change some of your storytelling techniques or some of your approach. They also have uh, what used to happen is there used to be very different audiences early. Uh, adopters and younger people were certainly uh, to be found in greater abundance on um, the internet and uh, on apps. That is now with more and more people having smartphones um, and fewer and fewer people getting news from um, from uh, web pages and more and more getting them from uh, from apps because it's much easier to use and it's far more portable than a than a laptop or trying to. Uh, go to a web page on your phone. Uh, we are finding that the audiences for a particular brand are getting to be very similar to if they, if the audience for the times, it, it, it actually, on, it, in electronic media, it skews a bit younger, uh, which is good for two reasons. One is because older people are dying. Uh, so you need to refresh the audience. Um, and the other one is that uh, there is, uh, while there is spending power in uh, various demographics, uh, there is um, more interest in using these uh, technologies or these uh, media uh, more often and uh, the younger you get. Uh, so uh, the reality was about, uh, I guess, 10 years ago, if you're under 45, the way to get to somebody was um, on apps and web pages and you could largely forget about television. If you wanted to get to people over 45, um, well, they'd be watching television. They probably weren't using apps and webs. Now, uh, web pages. Now, that is changing, and in the last 10 years, it's moved down about five or six years. So now it's about 42 to uh, whereas before it was 45. Uh, years of age. So that is changing too, 
which also means that each individual brand or masthead or uh, uh, influencer um, needs to realize they're talking to a more broadly based audience than they used to. So they can't be quite... One of the problems is if in any media, if you are very successful with a particular kind of audience, uh, but you need to grow that audience to become uh, more uh, secure. Uh, how, what appeal to the smaller audience uh, when you get to a larger audience with more demographics involved and more differences involved, how you uh, grow that becomes difficult. And basically that's the, the challenge of the media that has always been there since I suppose they started to paint on cave walls. Yeah, so I mean, with, with all of that in mind, do you think that the traditional news industry and these uh, huge organisations can maintain the dominance of, of their past? Well, not the same ones, no. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, News Corporation um, in the UK, um, they now publish fewer newspapers than they ever have. Well, perhaps fewer than they did when they started. Um, all newspaper circulation is falling, therefore the significance of those um, mastheads, the significance of those public publications is much less than it used to be, even though uh, many of the politicians still seem to hold them in the same awe that they used to. And, I mean, the reality is that if you just look at the number of brands that that no longer exist, media brands that no longer exist, I think that's the answer to the question. New ones will come in uh, to replace the old ones. Um, Facebook and uh, Twitter will continue to say we're not actually a publication, we're just a technology through which publications publish. Uh, but in doing so, they have, uh, they have certainly cleaned up a lot of those publishers. Uh, they've produced more small ones. But they haven't produced, um, they haven't replaced the big ones yet. And probably won't because the, the whole way the market is organised now is, um, is far uh, harder to, uh, to emulate, is far harder to control. I mean, when you, if all you were doing is broadcasting uh, the news, all you needed... Uh, in the old days, was a license from Ofcom or whoever the regulator was. Uh, likewise, even in the United States, anywhere in the world, you needed a license back in the uh, traditional days. Um, or um, now you don't. Uh, and as I said before, that the cost of entry is so much lower because it's so much. It's so cheap now to get a signal on the air to get um, something on um, on Facebook uh, that the opportunity to have large dominant organizations has passed because the opportunity to control the distribution has passed. Yeah, 100%. I've definitely been seeing this kind of ever-changing landscape of, of news broadcasters, especially on, on Facebook and Twitter. You know, Facebook pages and groups popping up about local news, um, about certain topics, specific topics and stuff like that. It's been really interesting to see. Yes, Definitely. So I think that that's it for questions, John. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your uh, schedule to speak with me today. Not at all. It's been interesting. A lot of these things I haven't thought of for ages, as you can probably tell. <laughs> yeah.
No, no, it was brilliant. It was really good, um, really insightful. So, I mean, just to finish off with, uh, what are you up to at the moment? Are there any exciting things in the pipeline? Well, yeah, it's a continuation of what we've just been talking about, actually, that the, uh, in many respects, the media came to a crossroad during the, uh, the pandemic, particularly during the lockdown, when a lot of the established um, uh, broadcasters or publishers um, had a problem in that they couldn't use their offices because of um, distancing or because people were ill, because running people together in a newsroom the way we were used to running newsrooms was too big a risk. Um, So they had to, in fact, become a cottage industry once again, uh, which meant that the technology, which by then was available and proven, um, was uh, pushed into service so that... um, a particular news program uh, may have been done in seven, what used to be all done in a control room with four or five people uh, all together in the same room, would be done um, in five or six different houses, possibly hundreds of miles apart, uh, using cloud technology and IP technology and broadband and so on. So while we were moving in that direction since uh, last year, And there again, the equipment required there isn't a lot of uh, expensive, heavy uh, floor space consuming um, mainframe computers and so on. Uh, uh, We are now on the verge of uh, of a new era of of dissemination of news, whether it be um, on uh, Facebook, Twitter, which is, I said before, a a publication um, um, conduit rather than a... um, a news brand uh, in itself, um, so that uh, production has become more software-based and the traditional silos between the story creation and the technical content production have been torn down. Uh, it's simply not possible to work in a linear fashion and sequentially churn out enough content to fill all the need- needed channels in a timely manner. Now, we've only just come to realise this on a general. I mean, there have been people like LNS, like Live News Systems, who've been saying this for about two years. But generally speaking, the industry or the world at large has only just come to realise it, and it was the lockdown that created this. While parts of the television production setup have, have started to adapt, uh, the control room is... Uh, still arguably the laggard that offers scope for massive and easily implemented improvements. Or in other words, because of the scale, depth and sophistication of um, automation systems and newsroom computer systems like LNS, uh, the requirement for having um, five or six different people come together to uh, lead with their expertise to, um, at that time, live Um, produce a combined product doesn't exist anymore, which means um, that the ease of producing these programs becomes greater, which means as far as journalism is concerned, I mean, what has has happened over the last 30 years that um, as computers became more and more involved, but uh, in in silos because the computer systems that we use for newsroom production were different to the... uh, computer systems that were needed for web pages and apps because they just didn't talk to one another. So you had silos of three or four different groups of people all under the same uh, brand or masthead 
uh, trying to produce similar kind of content for different media, but not being able to do it together. Uh, also, on top of that, we had journalists whose job it was to be uh, data wranglers and spend more time doing what the computers wanted than uh, doing the journalism. What we now find, uh, particularly with LNS, if you can order a pizza online, you can work LNS, that the technical requirements of the output are uh, taken care of uh, within the computer system so that the journalists can get back to being journalists again, that you can put more people on the road, you can have more fact-checking, and now this comes just at the very time where it's becoming harder and harder to get more journalists on the road or to get more journalists uh, fact-checking. So what we are doing at LNS is freeing up those people uh, who have uh, an experienced journalistic uh, outlook and putting and making them journalists again, uh, not computer operators. Uh, so software-defined visual story storytelling uh, is the premise that integrated the power of computers, software, and networks can not only change the technical aspect of video production, but by improving the way stories are spread, uh, alter the dynamics of uh, content creation which means at the very time that uh, journalism in particular is at the crossroads, uh, there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel. And I would say this, wouldn't I, but we've been working on it for some time. And in many respects, we've been working on it for more than 30 years. Uh, LNS is the light at the end of the tunnel. Who can benefit the most from LNS? More immediately. Uh, the most is the audience, whether the audience is watching on smartphones or uh, uh, or um, surfing through web pages, it'll be the audience that uh, that benefits most. But I think more immediately, it will be the journalists who can get back to being journalists again. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I could see that. Um, so, if people want to get in touch with you about LNS, uh, where can they find you? Right here. Uh, I get to tell you where here is. It's uh, my email address is John, my name, J-O-H-N, at Live Systems, which is the first two letters of LNS, Live Systems, one word, dot I-O, L-I-V-E-S-Y-S-T-M-S dot I-O, uh, or our website is almost the same. It's www.livesystems.io, uh, and um, you can get in touch with me that way, and we can continue the conversation. So definitely check that out. Uh once again, thank you very much, John, for taking the time out to speak with me today. It's been really insightful. Thank you very much for having me.